This is On the Fence Physio, a project designed to drive discussion around those gray topics in physiotherapy. If a professor ever answered your question with, it depends, this is where you want to be. We might not figure out the correct answer, but we will try to answer the question in every single possible way. This is a discussion forum directed at healthcare providers around issues in physiotherapy, but we also welcome viewpoints from patients. That being said, this podcast is not medical advice. If you are looking for legitimate medical advice, seek out a legitimate licensed medical provider. Now, on to the show. Welcome to another episode of On the Fence Physio. I am your host, as always, Andy Wiseman, physical therapist in the Maryland, D.C. area. I am joined by my lovely, my lucrative, my leader of a co-host, Matthew Owens. How are you doing today? Hey, I'm doing lovely to stick with the L's. <laughs> Do you like pick a letter to decide and like all the different ways you can describe someone or does it just come to you on a whim? I um summer school teacher at IUSB, Indiana University, South Bend Regional Campus, where I took my freshman um, English class that was mandatory so I could get it transferred to Purdue and not pay Purdue for the more expensive credit for a class I thought was pointless. Really taught me the rule of threes. Alliteration always comes in threes. Assonance as well. <laughs> so thank you, ma'am, wherever you are changing my life when it comes to literary accomplishments. Now, what are we talking about today, Andy? What was our discussion? Oh, I do think we have some physical therapy things to talk about. Uh, we can get off the uh, trials and travails of my college career. Um, we are here to talk about diagnosis and physical therapy. Um, we put posed the question as, do you use pathoanatomical diagnosis or movement-based systems for diagnosis. Um, when do you use these things? When are they good? When are they not so good? Do you use both? And we wanted to hear some people's thoughts. We got some good feedback from the audience. But before we dive too deep in here, I think it is time for our favorite segment, Vocab with Dr. Owens. So our vocabulary for today, we're going to focus on what is a movement based diagnosis and what's a pathoanatomical diagnosis. So the APTA, uh, they define a movement-based diagnosis as uh, something that uses recognized movement-related terms to describe the condition or syndrome of the movement system. They say if it's necessary, the name of the pathology, disease, disorder, anatomical, or physiological terms may be included but you need to be as succinct and direct as possible to improve clinical usefulness. Our pathoanatomical diagnosis, we typically think of as the body part structure and possibly then a little bit of the dysfunction coming along with that. So it could be something along the lines of chondromalacia patella or a quad tendon tear or a uh, shoulder impingement, those types of things. Those ones that we currently have ICD-10 codes for. Correct. 
that you frequently go to Google in an alternate tab to figure out what ICD-10 codes would be most appropriate for whatever patient you're evaluating. <laughs> Do you have those memorized? I don't. They're actually in our EMR, so I just you know type it in and it gives me the list. Okay. So, so what's uh, off the top of your head? What's the ICD-10 for? Bitten by a cow. Oh, no idea. Isn't that one you use all the time in Indiana? <laughs> Uh, no, not to, when I, we were talking about the movement system, I was like, oh, so I went to my doctor the other day cause I have a hernia that I have to get patched up and he's like, oh, I need you to, to, you know, to, um, keep track of your, your bowel movements. And, um, I was like, oh, like, how do you want me to do that? He's like, oh, use a log. And I was like, oh, that, that's, that's punny. So I got my log for my bowel movements. Um, but I don't, I don't see too many cow bites. I did have a patient once freshman softball player been having knee pain. We can decide if we want to call it pathway anatomical or movement based, but was having anterior knee pain and was doing great. And I thought she was about ready to be done. Comes in in the middle of July, second to last appointment on the schedule. She's like, my knee is killing me today. It's just, I can barely walk. And it's like, what happened? What'd you do? Oh, well, I was trying to walk my cow for 4-H, and it pulled me down and stepped on my leg. <laughs> it's like, oh, so nothing to do with softball. Oh, no, no, just my 2,000-pound cow stepped on my knee. I do believe stepped on by cow is a separate ICD-10 code. There is one for that. <laughs> Not to be confused with bitten by cow. Um, for the other Marylanders out there, they're also is bitten by turtle. Go ahead, Google that ICD-10 code and uh, enjoy. <laughs> <laughs> um, in my uh, in my dive into this literature, I was most confused by the amount of things that could then fall under that definition of what is a movement-based diagnosis. And I really, really wanted to understand what these things are because I personally am just interested in the idea of, well, don't try to, don't bother, don't even bother trying to figure out what tendon or what ligament is, is the problem for the patient. Just try to think about the movement. We are, APTA says, the movement specialists. And you can, well, I submit, love the idea. you can submit a movement-based diagnosis. Any of you, any of you listeners right now, you can go on the website, submit it, and say, this is what I think would be a great diagnosis for this thing, which is kind of crazy. So why me. is that how we're doing it? That's what I want to know. <laughs> That's what I want to know, too. Because yeah. if we are crowdsourcing this, there are too many people out there, physios included, that think glute amnesia is a thing. It is not a thing. Please stop trying to make it a thing. Everyone who wants to activate their glutes, please stand up out of your chair right now. Very good. You're done. Your glutes have been turned on. Shoot, <laughs> <laughs> oh. you don't even need to leave your chair. You can give them a little squeeze right now. That's right. Make yourself a little tough. <laughs> <laughs> They're on. They haven't forgotten anything. They know who they are. They know what they do. Please. Stop. So no, I don't think anyone should be able to make one. So who should be making these movement diagnoses? Gary Gray. No, the answer is me, oh, Matt. The yes. answer is okay. me. You're supposed to be looking to me to make. I want to share what my movement diagnoses are because mine are the most important. 
Yes. Do I sound like an entitled millennial yet? No, you sound like okay. our, you know, our our teacher at a, a couple of continuing education courses who thought their classification uh, system yeah. should be the the one used by everyone. So right. there are others like you, Andy, out there who think they know it all. All right. So here's what I'll say. I am at least a loose adopter because if the APTA finally gets out because they created their white paper that said that they were going to come up with movement-based diagnoses um, for physical therapists in 2015, okay? And they've posted a couple of other things, you know, um, diagnostic criteria, guidelines for how to create a diagnostic criteria in 2016 and 2017, but it's been kind of radio silence since then, 2021, folks. So if they're not going to create one, I'm going to create one for myself for now, but if they come up with one, I promise I will ditch mine immediately and start using theirs because I think if we can get all on the same diagnoses as a physical therapist, that will help our, our profession communicate better. It'll aid in co collaboration amongst providers and patient care, and I think it'll really help with um, moving our PT education forward and getting uh, some of those very nitty-gritty patho-anatomical questions off the NPTE, which I'm sure uh, students out there, you'd be really looking forward to that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it would be nice. I think I, so, I saw some tweets yeah. today about some people passing NPTE, so congratulations oh, yeah. to all those newly... That's always, I'm sure everyone that is listening to this podcast has passed their NPTE. If you're listening, you, it's just an, it's a given, obviously. So my system, can I share my system, Matt? Is that okay? Yep, go for it. I'm waiting, right. bated breath. Yep, yeah, you can. well, don't hold your breath too long. Um, it's a very simple system. It starts with one decision right away, is can the patient do the thing, whatever their thing is, okay? Um, if they can do the thing, then they um, have, but it hurts when they do the thing, right? They can do it, but it hurts while they do it. That is a tolerance issue, okay? If they cannot do the thing, they try to do the thing, they cannot do the thing, okay? It's a capacity issue. So let's say your issue is going for a walk. You know, your feet, your bottom of your foot hurts, right? Bottom of your foot hurts when you try, when you get out of bed in the morning, when you stand up for too long at work, when you stand at the kitchen counter, when you go for a walk, every time you're on your feet, it hurts. But you can walk, but you can stand. You have a standing tolerance issue. You don't have a standing capacity issue. If uh, you uh, stand up or try to stand up out of bed and you fall right over, or you try to put any weight on your foot and you immediately have to pull the weight off your foot, that's a standing capacity issue, right? So I immediately differentiate out, is it a tolerance or is it a capacity? I know those words get a little bit of uh, triggering for some physios. How I'm defining those words is that simple. Does it hurt while you do the activity, but you can do the activity? You have an intolerance, okay? A lack of tolerance. If you can't do the activity, you have a lack of capacity. So from there, we break it into a couple of subgroups based on why those things are happening. So if it is a capacity issue, and let's say, let's go to the knee. So if someone is having trouble going upstairs and they have a really weak knee extension um, torque production mechanism, right? They can't generate a lot of knee extension internal moment. 
and to meet the external moment that they're that they're getting then i look at that as a force generation issue okay so they have a lack of knee extension capacity with a force generation issue they can't generate enough force to do the thing they want to do and that's stop that's it right there that's the diagnosis what do you think about that so far so you far <laughs> no so far so good. so far so good i like you know two choices now we go to the next thing. Makes sense. All right. So my tolerance issues, right? My tolerance issues, I break into overuse, okay? The thing has gotten intolerant because it's been used too much, okay? Or I, um, I lean into compensatory. It is intolerant and has created an alternative way of getting the task done, right? So those are the people that I look at where if they have a knee extension moment tolerance issue, right? They have strength in their quad, but it hurts when they try to, when they try to, you know, get produce knee internal extension torque. And then you watch them squat on a force plate or on something that measures how symmetrical they're, you know, they're putting pressure through each, each leg. They see a subtle shift or a really glaring shift to one side, right? Sometimes it's even visually apparent. I look at that as a compensatory intolerance, right? So they have pain. They've learned a new pattern to avoid it. Good with that one. I'm good with that. Okay. So an overuse is just something that there's no mechanical deficit, but it just hurts, right? This can be from, you know, poor training schedules or just poor uh, lifestyle factors or other things. So this is somebody that when you have them squat, their squat looks perfectly symmetrical, looks perfectly fine, no issues with it, you know, but it hurts, right? They can do it, but it hurts. It is a overuse intolerance, okay? For somebody who has created different patterns of movement, it becomes compensatory intolerant. Um, other forms of capacity issues, um, maybe a stability capacity issue, those are most of my balance patients. They have the strength, you know, they can generate force, Right, but they just can't seem to coordinate it well enough to balance. So this is your this is your knee pain patient. When you ask them to stand on their painful leg, you know, solely, they can only balance for one second before they lose their balance. But the other leg can do ten seconds, no problem. Right? They have a capacity issue and it's an instability. I don't do instability as in like their joints unstable. I'm just saying they're unstable. Unstable <laughs> physically, mentally, emotionally, maybe, but physically is unstable okay so that's kind of as simple as i break it down i just try to think about it as a tolerance issue or capacity issue i do a little bit of trying to figure out what tissue is intolerant you know i get specific enough to say it's the anterior knee you know like you said earlier when we we're talking about <laughs> diagnosis like i'm not gonna be so bold as to say ah it's the infrapatellar fat pad that's what's intolerant <laughs> <laughs> I just know something on the front of the knee is intolerant. And, you know, that am amount of ambiguity uh, works with me now. I would have never have been able to tolerate that. I would have had an intolerance for that as a new grad. That amount of ambiguity to say, yeah, it's something on the front of your knee. And it's just mad right now. And it's intolerant of the load you're trying to put through it. And that's your diagnosis done. <laughs> Your capacity for not knowing has greatly improved, Andy. 
Yes, I would say so. So when we are coming up with these types of diagnoses, one of my questions is, who is it for? Who does it help? So if we're coming up with this movement system like you have, who do you feel like it helps? Does it help you? Does it help your patient? Does it help a referring provider understand what's going on? Like, where do you feel like those types of definitions aid or may hinder treatment? Um, diagnosis um, is not just for the patient. It is also for other healthcare providers. Now, I would I would go as far to say it's not really for the evaluating therapist. You've already evaluated them. Whatever label you want to throw on them is whatever label you throw on them. You're going to remember things about their evaluation that are very specific and context-driven for that patient specifically. Uh, so it's not really for you. But it is really helpful for the next therapist to see them. If you work in a setting where you have um, physical therapy assistance or maybe the patient's going to be on another therapist's schedule, it is really helpful to have a diagnosis system that helps you understand. Because if I'm reading through one of my coworker's assessment notes and I'm looking for that quick tagline of what kind of things are going on with this patient, not necessarily so that they can, you know, I can just follow their plan of care like a robot, but so that I can think for myself. But if I know what kind of their movement disorder is, then I can think about what kind of movements we want to work on. Because usually a movement disorder diagnosis gives you an idea of what things you need to work on. Um, for the patient, I think it provides a, a label. I think most patients, I would say a good percentage of patients, want to have at least some kind of label. They want to be able to leave their evaluation and say, hey, this is what's going on with me. I went to a healthcare provider with a problem, and they told me, hey, your problem is because of this. I think most people, I don't know if most patients would be okay with your provider saying like, yeah, we don't know why you're having a problem, and bye. And that's, I mean, you don't. Yeah, that's something. You had, oh, we, yeah, we that. talked about that because I I wonder that too, and I feel like it's something even yeah. as we've well, you learn more and you grow as a physical therapist, you do learn. There's a lot that we don't know, and there's a lot of things that when we're treating patients, it becomes a most likely scenario, but we can rarely ever say 100%. This is what's going on. This is how you're going to um, feel. This is how your condition will improve or not improve. But that's really what most patients, I feel like, come in wanting. They want some type of concrete label. And the research would back that up. And it lets us know that if we give an explicit uh, acknowledgement of uncertainty, patients have a worse view of you as a professional. Um, what we can do instead of explicitly saying, oh, I don't really know what's going on in the front of that knee, something's hurting, um, you can do a broad, implicit uh, explanation that gives some uncertainty but lets you know that, hey, I'm pretty sure I know what's going on, um, but you don't have to once again say that infrapatellar fat pad, right? And be like, yes, the anterior knee, there's a load intolerance issue, you have a label, you still come across confident and you know, the patient doesn't walk away saying like, well, why did I go see that, that guy or gal, right? They just told me they don't really know anything and we're going to try some stuff and see what happens. 
Okay. That's that's fair. Do you think there is any scenarios when a pathoanatomical diagnosis actually telling the patient this piece of your body, this specific tissue, is the problem? Do you think any is there any time when that's good? Yes. I do think there are times that is good. And there's also times when it's bad. Um, I think the what we can say from a post-surgical perspective is we know specifically what tissue has been worked on, um, what we don't tell the patient, or I don't tell my patient after they come in from surgery is like, hmm, well, maybe you never needed to get that in the first place. We don't really know. Who knows? This probably won't even fix your problem. I don't say those things, right? Um, but really, from research and what we've found... You know, that's Are you thinking about this? Oh, they kind of cross in the back of my mind. I sort of like <laughs> beat them down, right? But um, in those cases, we have a specific tissue, a specific um, healing time frame that we're looking and working towards based on what we know from physiology. And I think in those cases, it's good. I'm like, I don't think it needs to be any more complicated than, you know, right? Supraspinatus repair, post-surgical. You know, I don't, I don't think we need to go farther into it. Now, maybe down the line, 12 weeks out, what do you do? Do you switch to the a movement-based diagnosis of a, a load intolerance or a, uh, a capacity issue, right? If they can't, you know, hold a, a cup out in front of them. Um, I, I don't think so. I think it's maybe things that you're just talking about with your patient during the course of care, like why we're doing these things. This is what we're working on, but I don't think I need to change the diagnosis. I guess that's for me. I think for me and the patient. I don't know. What do you think, Andy? Should I start with one and switch to another? Or is there any benefit to that? Oh, I need that. Um, I need the little girl from the taco shell commercial. You know, why not both? <laughs> why not right? both? Obviously both, because if... I would say even in post-surgical patients, it might be beneficial to consider using both in your diagnosis. Because if you have a patient who has, let's say, a rotator cuff repair, right? It is perfectly fine for you to say that in that when you're diagnosing them on that first post-op visit, that you're treating them for status post-rotator cuff repair. That is a pathoanatomical diagnosis. And I think it's very appropriate. And the patient probably wants to hear you say that you understand that you're treating them for their rotator cuff being repaired. I think they want to know that you're on the same page because they just went and got that surgery and their surgeon said they repaired the rotator cuff. And they want to hear about their rotator cuff. They want to hear how the rotator cuff's doing. They want to hear what it's supposed to do. They want to hear about what are some good things your rotator cuff should be doing as you progress through different phases of physical therapy. I want They want to hear things about their rotator cuff because they've been hearing about their rotator cuff. Wait, so rotator cuff? Just, I no. thought rotary cup? Rotary cup? Rotary cup. Rotation cuff? That's that's what kind of phones you use in Indiana, right? Uh, I actually have one in this house right now. Yep. It's built Drink. into the wall. Yeah, <laughs> Okay, sorry. Back um, to the rotator. They, they want to hear about that. But, you know, for myself and for my, you know, coworkers, I sometimes like to differentiate out a little bit too is because some of my rotator cuff repair patients 
you know, if you've seen them at a certain point, you know, in their recovery, they're already past the uh, capacity issue, right? They're already raising their hand up above their head. So they don't have a capacity issue anymore. They might have a tolerance issue because they're painful when they lift something that's heavier. If they lift a five pound weight overhead, they're fine. But if they lift a 10 pound weight over their head, it gets a little more painful. They can still do it, but it hurts, right? They're more of a tolerance issue. Whereas some rotator cuff patients, like you give them a five pound weight, they do just fine. You give them a 10 pound, they can't move it. You know, like it's, just, it's not going anywhere. And whether that's mental, whether that's physical, it doesn't matter. It's still a capacity issue. Now, what do you do with patients who come in and have latched on to a pathoanatomical diagnosis? I think most commonly we see this in back pain patients, right? With, you know, I have a slipped disc. I have a herniated disc. I have a pinched nerve. I have sciatica. I have, uh, what is that? Stenosis. I said like arthritis, stenosis back there yeah. where I don't have much space. What do you, how do you, um, massage that uh issue with the patient and maybe bridge the gap between strictly this tissue is damaged and this is why i hurt to hey there may be some other things going on here okay this is a really this would be a really tempting time to use the one phrase we don't use on the show which is it depends i'm going to give some very specific examples to what to do in that exact scenario. The first question you need to ask yourself is where is your relationship with this patient? What is your therapeutic alliance like? You are about to challenge a patient's views, right? So if your therapeutic alliance is brand spanking new or maybe in kind of a rocky spot, it is perfectly within your clinical decision making to go along with that. To say, yep, it's that mean old disc and lean on that for a little while until you've built up enough trust that you can start to slowly nudge that belief. If, however, you have good therapeutic lines, you've built some rapport. This is a patient that's been referred to you by a friend or by a provider that referred to you by name. You know, like this is somebody that, you know, you already have a little bit of that alliance just built in. Go ahead and challenge that. Now, I have a bit of a narrative. This is a question that I get all the time, you know, lumbar discs. Um, I'm usually sitting at, by an exam table, and our exam tables have a um, pad on the top that's foam covered in vinyl. And I know some people get mad about the jelly donut analogy for physical therapy, but I'm a, I'm a very kinesthetic instructor. I like to demonstrate with things. So usually what I do is I say, hey, these discs in your back, right? So they've got a soft squishy center held in place by this thick, layers of collagen around it. It's kind of like this table right here. We got a foam pad held in place by vinyl, right? And I'm pushing down on it. And I'm like, what do cushions do when you push down on them? Oh, they spread out a bit. Is that normal? Yeah, that's normal. That's how cushions respond to putting weight on them. All right, what do the cushions in your back do? They probably spread out a bit when you um, put weight on them, right? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, have you heard the thing about how um, when you get up in the morning first thing, you're taller? Yeah, yeah, and gravity squishes you down. Yeah, 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 I've heard that, right? So you get patients to start buying into something that's very believable. Hey, you know, discs can, can kind of change, can protrude um, normally. And then you say, what if I told you that if you put a thousand people through an MRI machine, we would find that somewhere between 80 and 90% of them have a disc that's bulging out at some point, right? And only 75, 80% of those people 
are actually going to, you know, they're not going to be experiencing any pain, right? So there's a good percentage of people that have a bulging disc that aren't going to have any pain associated with that, you know, well, and they go, well, why is that? I said, well, it could be a multitude of any reasons. Part of our um, intervertebral disc doesn't even have nerve endings in it. You know, can't even feel anything. Do you have a needle in it? Nobody feels anything, right? Um, or it could just be because this bulging out are just kind of normal and your body just kind of rolls with it. It's like, hey, this is something that cushions do. They bulge out from side to side. Now, every once in a while, one of these discs sticks out and maybe it pitches on something that's sensitive and maybe you get some pain associated with that. Does that mean that the disc's fault? No, <laughs> just bad luck. You know, this is something that happens to a lot of people. Many people experience low back pain. It is completely almost normal experience for the human race. <laughs> if you <laughs> don't experience a case of low back pain that lasts longer than three months, you're the weirdo. <laughs> Everybody will experience cases of this at some point in their life. And you ask them, have you, do you know anybody else that's had low back pain? And every patient will say, yes, yes, I have. Huh, what do they do about it? Well, it got better eventually, you know, or they got surgery or, and you say, yeah, all these things probably help them get better because everybody experiences back pain. We need to find what the best treatment is for you. They've forgotten about the disc now. <laughs> Distract them, right? So I did an episode not too long ago about patient narratives. If it sounds practiced, if it sounds rehearsed, if it sounds like I'm a bit robotic when I say that, it's because I do it all the time. Practice these Frequently asked questions, listeners, practice them, be ready to answer them because the more confident you sound, the more practice it sounds, the more likely you're going to be able to change some negative patient beliefs. Now, changing patient beliefs, whether they be negative or positive, that's up for our psychology friends to debate. Can we actually do that? But my belief, my personal belief, not research-based, is that we can change patient beliefs if we can create alliance and present our information in a digestible way. I'm going to take a drink. <laughs> take a drink. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. Rarely <laughs> has anyone changed a core belief, and we're talking about maybe something even deeper than the belief that my disc is causing pain through a direct confrontation, right? So if we can right. create an alliance, create trust, create questions, create a narrative, you have a much better chance of changing the narrative in your patient's mind versus just telling them, oh, no, you're wrong. That disc doesn't do anything or, you know, so on and so forth. Uh, yeah, for sure. So what what would you say then um, when you're talking about, so back kind of to the disc, I think is a good segue into this. Um, how good are we at patho anatomic diagnosis finding the we're structure. not really that good <laughs> to just to lay it out there um whether you be an orthopedist whether you be a um physical therapist we're not that good at it because we are trying to cluster um clinical signs and symptoms uh into a diagnosis and predict what's going on with the tissue now the issue with pathoanatomical diagnosis, too, is that, well, how do you confirm whether that's true or not? Well, you confirm whether a pathoanatomical diagnosis is true if you got it right with imaging, right? Because that's the gold standard, right? If you're going to say that somebody has patellofemoral joint OA, which based on the paper I posted, 
only about 66% accuracy in diagnosing that, right? But that was in its agreement with radiographic findings. So radiographic findings of OA. And if you've been reading up on how accurate x-ray is at predicting whether someone's going to be pathological arthritis, problematic arthritis, versus just having arthritis and it being asymptomatic, we're not even that good at that. <laughs> so how do you know whether your pathoanatomic diagnosis is right? Because your pathoanatomical diagnosis has to also correlate with a clinical symptom, right? Exactly. And the image doesn't relate with the clinical symptoms. You can't use image as your gold standard if it doesn't. <laughs> There's too many things to relate to one another. That's why I want to give up that personally. I want to give up trying to do pathoanatomical diagnosis for the most part, you know, for 90% of, you know, like patients, because I feel like I'm not going to be right most of the time. I hate being wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so do you feel like having the correct label? is helpful in patient care? Like, do we need to really be able to label specifically these uh, presentations from our patients? I would say yes, but I would also say eventually. Um, a thing that I've noticed with students that rotate through my clinic is that they have a belief that they need to come up with their diagnosis on the first day. They need to be able to share what the patient's um, issue is and give them a clear-cut summary of all the issues that have been addressed in the evaluation by the end of that session. And I think that's a uh, negative belief for PT soup. You should We should try to nudge that. So, um, listener who we've created Therapeutic Alliance with, what if I told you that provisional diagnosis is perfectly fine? Right. If you do not know, if you have two competing diagnoses in your head on that day and none of the testing you've done has really clearly stated one or the other, is it okay to tell your patients, hey, so I did these tests over here and I tested these things out and I heard this, you tell me these things. And based on this demographic information, I put together this cluster and I'm thinking about this diagnosis A. But... You've also told me these symptoms and you're having these issues. We've tested these things and I'm kind of thinking diagnosis B over here. I think if you stopped right there, you would lose some confidence with the patient. What I do after that, the next line is usually what I think keeps patients on your team, keeps you working together, keeps that trust. And that's, but here's what we're going to do. We are going to try X treatment, X plan, whatever it is. If this starts to change in this way, I'm going to think it was diagnosis A. If this plan goes south, <laughs> falls apart, right? It might be diagnosis B, you know, and that's why. So we would need to change our plan and work on these other things. And if you share with patients with, hey, these are what my expectations would be if it was this, and this is how you should feel if it was this. I think that that's what kind of nudges patients um, back to the idea, the, the nonspecific diagnosis that you brought up, right? That it's okay to be nonspecific as long as you have that alliance built with the patient. You're being open, honest, building trust. And I'm trying to give specific examples of how I do that. Yeah, no, I think that's a, a good answer. And it's also something that as a, a patient, I think they appreciate 
hearing your thought process and not just saying like, here, we're going to do these exercises. Well, why am I doing these exercises? They want to know the why. <laughs> they want to know why you're doing it, what you're going to do for them. And it also helps them too. Like, hey, you told me if I was doing this and this happened, ah, we we're going to switch over here. And now we know, and it's not mm -hmm. a couple of visits in like, oh, shoot, well, scrap all this, change your exercises. We got to try something else. Uh, and you, if you broach that topic on the first day, if you have questions about competing diagnoses, you're going to help maintain that therapeutic alliance and not lose them for sure. So another model that we've heard in school uh, back uh, in the day. On oh, yeah. yeah. I, 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 wanted, I wanted to point this out. I wanted to point this out. I'm wondering if there's any listeners that have been sitting sitting there fuming going, these guys, these guys right here, they created a false dichotomy. It's not just pathoanatomical versus movement based. I want my treatment based <laughs> classification system. Yeah, what is a treatment based classification system? Who's coming up with that? Well, that one's an APTA thing as well. Read your clinical practice guidelines for mm -hmm. low back pain. And so I'm not going to know what the person's problem is until I'm done treating them? Until you're done treating them. You treat them with something and see what happens. No, based on how the patient presents when they come in. So for back pain, for example, um, we can say like how long have they had symptoms? Less than 14 days, we'll say. Where are their symptoms? Oh, they're not below the knee. Um, any red flags? Change of bowel or bladder function? No. How's their bone density health? Good. All right, I'm going to manipulate them. That would be a treatment-based oh, classification. I'm manipulating all my patients, but not in how you are. <laughs> <laughs> Just verbal manipulation. Um, yeah. I'm using physical manipulation, right? Um, the other would be, you know, is uh, it something where... Don't want you to get twisted. Right. Don't want to get twisted. Uh, how they've had, now they've had their symptoms for two years. Um, once again, no change of bowel or bladder function. Uh, maybe some... Uh, just general soreness, this and that. All right, we're going to treat with exercise and general education. Send them on their way. Uh, those types of things. Also, directional preference or a movement-based treatment. Uh -huh. um, if they have symptoms below the leg. But it's still yeah, kind of based, on, based on the treatment, right? Because it's yes. like you do this movement and if that makes you better, then yeah, that's the diagnosis. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> So when you're uh, when you're making uh, jokes about manipulation, do your patients ever crack up? All the time. <laughs> Come on, man. I'm gonna pop off, don't you? Well, that's. I was trying to think of how to use pop crack up, but pop off. There you go. That was it. I'm too. Okay. I'm just not not as quick. Make a joint. Make a joke together. A joint effort. A joint effort. <laughs> And so it continues on. So what are your uh, thoughts on the movement-based versus treatment-based versus uh, pathoanatomical versus the, so I wanted to bring in one of our right. Twitter versus, um, comments. Versus, 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 right? Yeah, yeah Chase Ch Edwards. He uses the, the ICF model. Oh gosh, Professor Strunk would be Doctor Strunk would be so upset with you for butchering that. I know. <laughs> I don't think she listens to our podcast, so I think we'll be. I think I'll be okay. Well, 
Because shout out to Indiana University Physical Therapy Program, who just got their first Twitter account. So we're going to get them on a podcast, whoever's running that Twitter account, at IUDPT. (laughs) We're going to have to get our first guest. Bring them on. Yeah, Actually, so yeah, I, I, I see. I do have a patient who also has a podcast and has extensive background in creating podcasts and other management of social media who wants to be a guest on the podcast, but I told her I cannot have her be a guest until after she's discharged care. <laughs> that would be a conflict of interest, yeah. So versus versus versus. Is there any a common ground. And I know we've talked about it a little bit, like in you kind of this, not always this, sometimes this, um, that there's a time and place for each of these systems. Just bring them all together. Use them all. Why not? Well, I think there's just so many systems, Andy. I can't keep them straight. I need one thing that is definitive with no gray area whatsoever. All the time. That's what that's what professional bodies are for. <laughs> um, we will continue to wait with bated breath for the APTA to come out with um, movement-based diagnoses, and maybe it'll be just in time for ICD-11 codes to come Woo-hoo! out. All right. Any other <laughs> thoughts regarding this topic, Andy? I think that wraps it up. I am we're moving on uh, intolerant of this. We are ready to move on. Speaking of which, uh, Matt, what would be a good topic of conversation for our next podcast? What do you think we could debate around the pros and cons of? I want to debate, talk about, investigate why when, how to use joint mobilizations, good, bad, or otherwise. Is this just because of the string of jokes I did on joint mobs? It is. I think we're going to have a lot of puns. I'm going to think about uh, it, sit there. I'm going like to write things out. Take a hands-on approach, huh? Yep. I'm going to take a hands-on approach. I sure am. And I'm going to see if I can get you know, anything that would move our audience so I'm, ex- I'm excited for it. I'm excited for it. Okay. So if you're not already following, I'm sure you already are, follow us at OTF Physio for our Twitter account. We will be posting our discussion thread for the next week's or the next month's podcast. Yeah, we're not doing these once a week. <laughs> Forget that. The next month's discussion on Joint mobilizations. I think there are some people with strong opinions on these. I would love to hear from you, whether you be a healthcare provider, a patient, or otherwise. Please share. With that, I think we can wrap it up for tonight. This has been On the Fence Physio. Thank you very much. We'll see you again next time.